And as you do, if you'd open and turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1, that's where we'll be camping out today. You know, as, uh, as uh, Dan said a little bit earlier, this is our seventh week in our series of the theology of the listener and theology of the hearer. And uh, what we've been trying to do is we've been trying to look through the Word of God and look at different theological principles that would help you and I become uh, better listeners of the Word of God when it's being preached. And in the last couple of weeks, the last two weeks, uh, we've been looking and really discussing our responsibility in the preaching event. That it's not only a pastor that is responsible, but it's also the congregation that is responsible to listen appropriately. You know, we often think that the pastor is really the one that is most responsible within the preaching event. And it's true. He has a great deal of responsibility. He is supposed to rightly divide the word of truth. He's supposed to proclaim not his opinion, but the accurate word of God. But you, as a listener, also have responsibilities in this particular event, in the preaching event. And two weeks ago, we saw that the first uh, responsibility that the hearer has is that is, is this, is that they prepare for the receiving of God's Word. That we shouldn't just rush into the church service without any kind of preparation. If we believe that God is truly going to speak... God is going to truly transform people through the preaching of his word, then we need to make sure that our hearts are right when we come to the house of God. We have to make sure that we come confessing, that we come praying, that we come worshiping and come expecting that God truly is going to speak. Last week, we saw our second responsibility, and that was this, is that we should come and we should come to receive the word of God. And we saw through the passage in Acts chapter 17 of the Bereans that they stood as a wonderful model for us of how they received the word. They received it with great desire. That was they were eager to hear the word, to receive it. They wanted God's word. And also they received it at the same time with discernment. Because they understood that even though there are men of God that truly want to preach the word of God, men like me are fallen. Men like me are not perfect. And so oftentimes there are some preachers that intentionally try to lead their listeners astray. There are some that unintentionally do it. But it is your job as a listener to filter through whatever is being preached through the clear teaching of the word of God. Well, this morning, we come to the final responsibility, if you will, and our seventh and final uh, hearing aid, and that is this, is that we are to re- it's about responding to the preaching of God's Word. Responding to the preaching of God's Word. Let me just say this. I think that this is probably one of the more difficult messages throughout the whole thing. Because when we talk about responding, we talk about really placing the pressure on you to respond to what it is that God is saying. Please understand, if you prepare for the Word of God and you come and even receive the Word of God and are anxious for it, but do not respond, the Word of God does nothing for you. We've got to get that into our heads as contemporary listeners. God did not speak simply for you for a goal of you hearing His voice. Do you get that? He has spoken primarily to transform you and to get you to obey by faith what it is that he's calling you and I to do. Sometimes God calls us to do something. Sometimes God calls us to cease from doing something. Sometimes God calls us to believe something. And sometimes God calls us to correct what it is that we normally believe. But whatever it is, God wants us to respond when he speaks and when he speaks to the preaching of his word. If you agree, say amen. Now, that brings us to this passage here in James chapter 1, because it is all about responding. But before we really get into the text, let me give you some background information 
if you're listening last week, it's needed, so that we understand in context what the author was saying. James is the author of this particular letter. He, he, he was the pastor there in Jerusalem, which obviously was a large church. And he wrote this letter to a group of Jewish believers who had fled, who had been dispersed out of Jerusalem because of some very, very serious persecution that had arisen in Jerusalem. The Jews didn't like the, the new way as they were talking. They didn't like this Christianity. So they began to persecute the Jewish people. They, in turn, spread throughout all of Asia Minor and they spread out. Well, over a period of time, James, a loving pastor who cares for his people, wants to know how his people are doing. And word begins to return to him exactly how they're doing. And he really becomes troubled because what he hears is not good news. What he hears is that the folks that claim to be believers are not truly living according to what they claim they believe. And so what he does is he writes to them and he lets them know, if you don't live out, if you don't practice what you believe, then you have a, what he calls a dead faith. He says it is faith that does and cannot save you. It is the kind of faith, he says, it's the kind of faith that where you have a mental assent to the knowledge and the facts of Jesus Christ and who he is, but it is not any kind of transforming salvation in faith. And that's what true faith does. True faith, listen to me, it changes you from the inside and therefore demonstrates an outward transformation in your life. Do you get that? And so that's what salvation does. And so what he's simply saying is, hey, look, if there's no transformation, there's no salvation. It's not true saving faith. So what he does through the course of this book is he gives a series of tests for the listener. He gives them a series of tests. Uh, that, that's my niece, by the way. You can blame me. All right. And that's and, and, and so there's a series of tests in which he gives that the people who are reading this letter can then use to test whether their faith is authentic saving faith or not. And so the very first test that he gives is in the beginning of chapter 1. And there what he does, he basically says the first test deals with trials and tribulations. He says, how you know whether your faith is true or whether it is not true, saving faith or not saving faith, is how you respond to difficulties, to trials and tribulations. He teaches that in chapter 1. Go back and read it. He says this, he says, if, if your faith is not true, trials and tribulations come up, you draw away, run from God, become embittered and run the opposite way. Have you ever known anyone? like that? He says, but true faith, if you have true faith, difficulties arise. And what ultimately happens is you may struggle. You may go through difficulty. You may weep. You may be saddened, but ultimately you come to faith in Christ in a deeper, more meaningful way through those difficulties, trials, and tribulations. Now there's a second test, and that's what we're going to focus on this morning. The second test to determine whether somebody is truly in the faith or not is simply how they respond to the word of God. Now, remember something. Each person did not have their own individual Bible back then. So the majority of what was going on of how they would respond was through the preaching of the word in the synagogues. They would come and they would or, or, or they would gather or uh, maybe even in homes at that time. And later on, as it began to become more accessible, they would read the word of God and then they would preach and explain. They'd preach the word. So a lot of what they're talking about is how you respond to the preaching of the word of God through God speaking is ultimately going to determine. Guess what? Whether your faith is true or it is not true saving faith. And so that's where we find ourselves this morning. And so here's the question. How are we to respond to the word of God? Well, let's see what James says here. He says, first of all, that we are to respond in obedience. We're to respond in obedience. Notice, if you will, in verse 22. He says, but 
but be doers of the word. The word but there transitions between the previous verse and verse 22. It connects the two, all right? So in verse 21, notice what he said there. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. What he's talking about there is preparing for the word. All right. Remember, we talked about preparing for the word. You have to confess your sin. Make sure your heart is right when you come into to hear the word of God. He's telling them, hey, listen, you need to prepare. And then he tells them to receive and receive with meekness, which is humility, the implanted word, which is able to save your soul. So he's gone through the same process we have in the last two weeks. Prepare, receive. And now look what he says. He says, but be doers of the word. He's saying, listen, You preparing yourself and receiving with great joy the word is not enough. You also have to do what the word of God is calling you to do. He says, so, but be, the word be speaks of a continuing action. But be doers of the word. Now, I want you to see that word doers for a second. And understand it sounds like a verb, but it's actually used as a noun. Now, that's important. It's important because he's not calling them specifically to do something. He's calling them to be something. And there's a huge difference between the two. Do you know there's a big difference between a guy who tinkers with automobiles and a master mechanic? Do you know that there's a difference between that? Some of you are married to tinkerers, right? And you would rather send your car to a master mechanic, but he's like, no, I can tinker, I can fix it, right? That kind of thing. And then when he fixes it, then you take it to the master mechanic. You, you, you with me? There's a difference. The difference is the tinkerer, it's something that he does. It's a hobby of his. It's something that he enjoys to do on the weekends. He does kind of in a part-time kind of capacity. But the master mechanic, he dedicates his entire life to learn as much as he possibly can to direct his life to become the greatest mechanic that he can in a full-time capacity. There's a difference between a weekend warrior that likes to play pickup basketball games and an NBA professional player. You know, there's a difference, right? And I know we have some weekend warriors here, right? You have the sweatband around your head and the high shorts, which are out 20 years ago. And you pull up your socks and you put the wristband on and you go out. And every weekend you injure something, right? And it's usually your hammy, you know? And and then you talk about how you used to be so much better. And you used to actually be able to leap and touch the bottom of the net, even though you can't anymore. So those things, well, that's different than the professional NBA basketball. You see it, there's, there's a distinction. The professional basketball player in the NBA, they dedicate their entire life for one passion, basketball. Everything is dedicated, 24 hours a day, what they eat, how they train, where they go. Everything is dictated by this particular goal in their life. There's a huge difference between the two. And so what Paul is saying here is he is not calling you and I merely to occasionally in a part-time capacity do what it is or seek to do what God is calling us to do. He says here in the word of God that what he's calling us to do is that we are to be fully and utterly committed our whole being, mind, body, soul, and spirit to continually be obedient to God's commands. Every moment of every day, every bit of who we are should be dedicated for one purpose, pleasing, doing what God has called us to do. When you do that, you're not just doing what he calls you to do. You are a doer of the word of God. You know, it's important for us to understand this command. Why? Azurdio, um, excuse me, Arturo Azurdio wrote this. He said, the gospel, listen to this. The gospel is a message which declares the invasion of God in human history. God has intervened to address the human dilemma by means of his redemptive achievements. You know what he's saying? God spoke. God spoke. 
He spoke and he told us how he was going to redeem the world. Had he not, we would all perish because there's no way of us knowing his agenda through his sending of his son, his redemptive plan. And notice this. He says, hence, the good news, the gospel is to be announced. It is to be proclaimed. What is he saying? God spoke. It should be preached is what he's saying. But notice this last part. God is not negotiating with the message. Now he's talking about your and my response to what is being preached. God is not negotiating with this message. He is not asking for discussion or attempting to strike a bargain. As the Lord of the universe, he is declaring a word that demands compliance from his creation. God has acted. God has come. You and I must what? Respond. I think that that is something that we are missing, a conviction that we are missing in the house of God. I believe that there are many who come to the house of God with their minds not made up or made up. This is what they do. They come and they think to themselves, I hope I hear something that is going to be good for my life, helpful for my life, somehow is going to make my life perhaps even a little bit better when it's being preached. And if it doesn't, I'm just going to reject it. If it's something that I think is good and something that's going to help me, well, I'll obey that. But if it's something that I don't like or something that rubs me the wrong way, or it's something that's going to make my life, the command of God that's going to make my life even more difficult than whatever it is, well, then I'm just going to completely and utterly reject it. So what we have to do is right here of what he's saying, he says, God has called you to be a full-time doer of his, not part-time, full-time. And so it's important for us to be able to remember this. It's important for us to remind ourselves that he is not, when he speaks to us, he is not bargaining with you. He's not making a request. He's not negotiating some kind of deal. He's demanding with all the authority as your creator to do what he is telling you to do. He wants no delays, no excuses. He wants obedience and obedience alone. Do you guys get that? So when the word of God is being preached, God is expecting you to do what he is calling you to do. It seems so simple, but why isn't it the conviction of God's people? That's the question. And notice this, he says, I want you to be a doer, a full-time doer of the word, and to be a doer and not hearers only. Now notice that, that word hearers right there, it's in the second line or the second part of the sentence. He said, not hearers only. That word hearers was used during that day in ancient times to describe somebody who would come and sit and listen to a lecture. But the key is they weren't a disciple or a follower or even a fan of the one who was giving the lecturing. So when they came, they were just kind of listening passively. And so a modern day example of that would be somebody who audits a class, audits a college class. If you've ever taken a college class for credit, you hate those who audit a class, don't you? Because what that means is they kind of have to be there and listen, but they're not going to be held accountable to use any of the material which is being taught. If you're taking it for credit, you're going to get tested. You're going to be quizzed. You're going to have to show that you are capable of, of using what you've been taught. And you're going to have to show that you have the capability to do so through a test or a paper or whatnot. But the person that audits, they don't listen really intently because when they're there, they're just kind of passively listening because they have absolutely no intention of using what it is that they're ultimately hearing. And he says, so listen, do not merely be hearers of the word. Ezekiel, the great prophet in the Old Testament, he was he ultimately faced this very thing. Listen to what the word of God says. He says, as for you, son of man, speaking of Ezekiel, 
says, your people who talk about, he goes, your people talk together about you by the walls and the doors of the houses, say to one another, each to his brother, come and hear the word that comes from the Lord. Here's what you have to understand. What's going on is during his day, Ezekiel was a great speaker. He was a great communicator. People loved to hear the guy speak. So he was kind of like this famous guy during his time. So people would go all the way through the cities and go, come and hear what Ezekiel has to say. But notice this. And they come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths, they act. Their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. You get what's going on here. What they're doing is they're just looking at this as entertainment. There's some kind of level of appreciation and, and liking for what it is that Ezekiel is saying. But when they come up, it's like them auditing a class. They just kind of sit back and they listen to it and go, wow, that was good. They like to talk about it. They like to be able to, to, to defend it, to be able to argue it. They actually feel good when they're hearing what's going on. But he ultimately says, but they come not willing with their minds made up to have any serious consideration to truly do what it is that God is calling them to do. And again, I believe that that's what we have in the church. I believe that we have people that come and for whatever reason, they love to be able to come. They love to be able to hear what's going on. There's some kind of fondness of it. They get a kick out of it when the preacher begins to cry. They love that part. Or or when he gets fired up and he begins to turn red or whatever it is. He loves all of these things. They like it. But as they come, they're just kind of like, well, I know he's going to tell us to do something, but I don't really come to really take what he says seriously. And so what the Bible says is those who listen that way, what do they do? Those who only hear deceive themselves. They deceive themselves. How do they deceive themselves? Let me tell you what I think the biggest deception is in the church of God today with people. They really truly believe that what God wants them to do is acquire knowledge. They believe that's the end of what God is requiring of them. To come to the house of God, to listen, to read, to read their Bible, to go to small group so that they can learn all kinds of stuff for the word. Then they believe if they could just come and they can learn that it's an end unto itself. Now, let me share something with you. This is, very, this is a great temptation that anybody who loves the word. It's a great temptation for me as well. I'll read a theological book or I'll go through a systematic theology or I'll read somebody's take on it. And you begin to read and you get so excited about all the new stuff that you're learning. But if I'm not careful and if you're not careful, you find yourself being deceived. Why? Because God did not speak primarily for you just to acquire new knowledge. God has spoken primarily for you to acquire the knowledge and use that knowledge to be transformed in obedience to the likeness of his son. For you and I to come to the house of God and listen and enjoy and love what we're hearing, but yet listen, walk away, and at the same time not being obedient to what he's called you to do, we're deceiving ourselves. Deceiving ourselves. Now notice what he does here in the word. What he does is he actually gives, James gives... Uh, an example uh, here, God, uh, James gives an illustration of what a hearer is like here in, in James chapter 23. Notice, follow along with me. He says there, he says, for if someone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently in a natural face in the mirror. And he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he 
what he looks like, right? What he was like, what he saw inside of the mirror. Now, stop and think about it for a minute. We all have mirrors, do we not? Now, contrary to popular demand of you young teenage men and even you uh, 40-year-old men or however old you are, the mirror is not there for you to flex in, okay? That's not the primary purpose of the mirror. And it's interesting because young men do it, but I don't think you ever grow out of it, do you guys? You still walk by and try to give a little tri-flex or whatever it is or try to make your chest bounce and mine doesn't and, and, uh, and everything. And there's just nothing there. That's not really primarily what the purpose of the mirror, the, the mirror is. It says the mirror really, it, we think, provides an accurate picture of what is actually there. Isn't a mirror, unless you're in some kind of like fun house somewhere, it's actually there, right? And and I've actually heard people get in front of a regular house mirror and go, hmm, this mirror makes me look a little chubby. (laughs) The mirror makes you look chubby? Or are you chubby? Yeah, you you, you get that? Like, it's kind of for me, and, and I've never told very many people this, but I've got a rather large nose. And this is not the congregational seating that I need for one who has a big nose because somebody's always getting it, all right, from the profile. But when I look into a mirror and I see and the mirror shows that I have a big nose, I don't sit there and go, liar, there's something wrong with this mirror. Let me look at another one. And everyone I go, the nose is still there. So what it does is it reveals accurately reality of how things truly are. But there's a purpose of that mirror. The purpose of that mirror, again, is not for some of you who are just unbelievably gorgeous to sit there and go, my, I look good, like Fonzie. Hey, you know, and walk away. That's not what the purpose is. The purpose of the mirror primarily is for what? It is primarily for us, the mirror, to correct, for us to correct that which needs correcting. It exposes what's wrong. You sit there and all of a sudden you could tell that there's maybe some bad hair going on. Now, for those of us that are losing hair, every day is a good hair day, no matter what it looks like. Amen? <laughs> Guys, don't make me point you out. No, right? So it's a good day. Hair. But you may get up and ladies, maybe, maybe you think that you, you think, not me, maybe you think you need a little more makeup or a little less makeup. Or maybe it's a little smudged. Or, or, or maybe something's going on. Or men, maybe you still have a piece of burrito from lunch just kind of hanging down your, your face that needs to be wiped off. Or maybe your clothes need to be changed. Maybe they're soiled. Maybe you need to put some cleans on. That's what the point of the mirror is. It very accurately demonstrates what is wrong for the purpose of you correcting it. If your hair is off, you comb the hair. If your face needs to be washed, wash the face. If clothes need to be changed, change the clothing. That's the purpose of it. He says, but how ridiculous would it be and how useless would it be if a man comes and looks inside that mirror and intently looks and sees all the things that are wrong with him and then instead of changing it, simply walks away, does nothing about it. But when he walks away, when enough time comes by, what is he going to do? Not only is he going to be un- he's going to remain unchanged, but he is going to forget about everything that he ultimately saw was wrong within the mirror. And so what the word of God is teaching us here is the word of God is like a mirror. The word of God provides an accurate picture of what is actually there. It exposes in us what needs to be corrected. When the word of God is proclaimed each and every week, what God is doing is he is showing what part of us does not look right. What parts of us need to be corrected? And I'm going to tell you this. There hasn't been a sermon that I've ever preached in this pulpit that I did not personally need to be corrected. 
God is constantly showing, saying, hey, this is out of order. This needs to be corrected. You need to do something about this. And so what we do is this. But can you imagine coming to the word of God, listening very intently, being prepared, listening very seriously with great desire, with great discernment. But then the invitation comes. You are exposed to the power of the Holy Spirit, what's wrong in your life. And then you just walk out the door and you just kind of go your way. And you never seriously consider and begin to work on and bring before God to correct that which the word of God has already exposed. It's ridiculous. He says, not only do people walk away every Sunday morning unchanged, even though the word has exposed them. He says, but what happens is they go away. And eventually, if enough time goes by, they forget altogether what it was that was wrong with them to begin with. And so, folks, it's, what he's trying to do is he's trying to use irony and say, this is ridiculous for a person to you as a marriage like this. And he says, it's ridiculous for you and I to come and hear the, word, the preaching of the word of God, have it expose our faults and not do business with the Lord Jesus Christ to correct what has been exposed that is not like his son, Jesus. And so what we find here is this is, is we, we, we find out that he says it's ridiculous, but it's not only ridiculous, it's dangerous. It is dangerous to hear the word and not respond in obedience. Let me give you three ways, and I want to give them to you very quickly. First of all, if you hear the word of God preached and you do not respond, you do not do business with God in the preaching event, then three things, you you disobey, three things will happen. First of all, God takes away what you have and he gives you no more. Matthew chapter 13, verse 12 says this, For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. You know what he's saying? He's saying those who have truly received the word of God and begin to put into practice what it is that they heard through the preaching of the word of God, the Holy Spirit is going to bless them by giving them more of the truths of who God is. Do you want more truth? I want more truth. I want to know him better. I want to know him more fully. I want to know that the wonders and the beauty and the subtleties of the scripture and the truth of theology. I want all of that stuff. But you know what God says? He says, listen, if you are not obedient to what it is that I gave you, I will not give you anymore. You know what in essence he's saying? Listen to this. Listen, church. If you come to the house of God and you're not serious about obeying what is being preached, you are wasting your time. You are wasting your time. Nothing is going to happen in you. No transformation is going to happen. You are wasting your time, not only based on what he just told you, but also based on what he's going to tell you in the weeks to come, because you're not going to get it. You're not going to get it. You're not going to understand it. You're not going to understand the sense of it. Do you hear the urgency of responding here? And that's what the word of God says. Secondly, is this you heap judgment upon yourself. Luke chapter 12, verse 48. But one who did not know and did not deserve uh, and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom much they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Every time you hear the word of God, you are either training yourself to be obedient or disobedient. You are accountable for every word you hear. It is a blessing to be in the house of God in a church like this where men of God take it so seriously to accurately divide the word of truth. Amen? Every minister on staff is exactly like that no matter how how many people. But do you understand the danger of it? The danger of it is more accurately they divide the word of truth and speak to you in the way in which God has done. The greater the weight of responsibility you as listeners have. 
And you will be held to a higher account for every word that you are taught under the preaching of the word of God. And when you and I decide not to submit and to obey to it, what we do is we go obey, we go away disobedient and we are practicing continual disobedience, even though we keep coming back and it's a waste of time. Third thing, when we disobey, when we hear the word of God, your heart is hardened against the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You know, we often think of the conviction of the Holy Spirit as a bad thing, don't we? Oh man, I just felt so convicted, and we just feel like it's a bad thing. Has anybody ever felt convicted underneath the preaching of the Word? Raise your hand. You ever feel that conviction? All right. Half of you have never. I will try harder. Holy Spirit, it's your fault. Okay, Here, here's the deal. When that, Holy, when that conviction comes... What is it doing? The Holy Spirit showing us in the light that something's out of place, that something's wrong. It's the only way we know that something's wrong in order for us to know that it must be corrected. You got me? So it's a wonderful thing. Even though we don't like to feel that conviction, it's a blessing what God is ultimately giving us. You feel convicted, and what it means is, hey, listen, draw and do something. But this is what the Bible says in Ephesians 4.30, that he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. In other words, we talked about this before, is if you keep saying no to the Holy Spirit, that softness of your heart begins to turn into rocky, hard soil which is impervious to the Word of God. It becomes hardened. Then instead of you feeling under the conviction and the compulsion of the Holy Spirit, then you hear the Word of God, but it does nothing to draw you anymore. It does nothing to stir you anymore. Do you understand how frightening that is? How terrifying that is? This wonderful gift of grace that God has given us is now all of a sudden being taken away because of our perpetual willingness or unwillingness to obey, to submit to what God is ultimately saying to us. It's a scary, scary thing. Now, notice this. He, he begins to talk about the doer of the word. He describes what the, what the hearer is like. Now he describes what the doer is like in, in verse 25. He says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, Now, I want you to look at this. This is the doer of the word. That word looks there literally means to bend over and carefully examine something from the clearest possible vantage point. See, this here, he's taking the class for credit. He's not auditing it. See, what he's doing, he's he's listening, he's peering, he's bending over, he's looking into the word of God. He's listening with all of his attention of what is being preached because he knows there's a quiz. He knows there's a test. He knows there's a paper to be written that he's going to be held accountable. And he must, by the command of his professor, put what he is hearing into practical action. You get that? And so what does he do? He's not passively listening. He's sitting there intently bending over, looking in to the word. But what kind of word? He says here, he says that he looks into the perfect word. We learned this in the psalm. Remember when we were talking about the nature of the word of God? The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. You say, how is it perfect? It's perfect in every way. Listen, if you come to the house of God and the word of God is preached right and you feel conviction in your heart and you understand that, hey, listen, my life is not matching up to what he's saying, you can guarantee that the word of God is not wrong, that the error is found in you. Not the word of God. You got that? That's what he means by the perfect law. It's perfect in every way. And he looks into the law of liberty. So on one side, you have a list of rules. It's the law. It's the word of God. But on the other side, what does he mean? The the law of liberty. How does law bring liberty? 
Have you ever thought about that? I mean, as a teenager, my parents' laws didn't make me feel free. But that's what he's saying. He says, God's law sets you free. How? Many ways. It exposes your need and your inability to save yourself. It exposes your sinfulness. It exposes your need for a savior. What else does it do? Then when you are saved and born again, it shows you how you can walk rightly in fellowship and a right relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. You can live and do as he has called you to do. That's liberty. Guys, listen, it's liberty not to live under guilt anymore. It's liberty when God tells you what he requires and you free be able to do it as an act of praise through the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within you. That's liberty. Before you came to faith in Christ, you could not fully obey what God had called you to do. But now because Jesus Christ, through his death, burial and resurrection, has broken the bond of sin and death in you, he now fills you with the Holy Spirit and now you're capable of doing that very thing. So instead of living in disobedience with him, now you are free to follow what the law of liberty tells you to do. And when we do, notice what the scriptures say. The scriptures say finally here, it says that it does what? He says, the law of liberty and perseveres. It takes perseverance. It's not a one-time thing. Remember, this is constantly doing, continual action, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. Haven't we seen that all the way through all the different texts of scriptures, Old Testament and New? That there's this constant promise of God that if you will do what I say, what will he do, church? What will he do, church? He'll bless you, right? It's all the way through the word of God. But there's something else in the word of God. It also says, if you don't do what I do, I will what? I'll curse you. We call it in the New Testament, because curse is too heavy for us, we call it in the New Testament discipline of God. But I want to let you know it's primarily the same exact thing. Hebrews chapter 12. He disciplines those who he loves. If he does not discipline you, you are an illegitimate child of God. True children of God who are in true faith of God are going to be disciplined when they they disobey what God is calling them to do. But here's the great part. He blesses those. He blesses those that obey him. The word of God is very clear. Luke chapter 11, verse 28. Blessed are those who hear the word of God. And it's not supposed to be deserve it. It's supposed to be do it. Okay, John 13, verse 17. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Now, let let me share this with you very quickly. There are some things as a believer, if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, there are certain things that God has given you completely independent of you, completely independent of what you've done. Do you guys get that? If he saved you, it's not because of what you did. I walked an aisle. No, I prayed a prayer. No. I came to faith in him. Yeah, but you would not have that faith unless he gave you the faith. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. So he gave you salvation. He gave you eternal life. He gave you justification. He adopted you as sons. And he's given you every spiritual blessing under the sun, despite and apart from everything you've done. Isn't our God amazing? Now, here's the crazy thing. But as a child of God, we saw this in our study of Joshua, didn't we? But as a child of God, Even though he continues to give his grace, listen to me very carefully. He gives you a choice because he's given you your spirit to do what is right. He says, if you will, through the power of the Holy Spirit in which I've given you, if you will obey, not only have I absolutely poured upon you more blessings than you've ever imagined, I'll continue to bless you. I'll continue to bless you. And we believe that as Christians. We believe that. But what I don't believe we believe is that God is going to discipline us. I don't believe that. 
Because I believe the average person sits there and when they hear that, oh, God will bless us, but he's telling me to do this. I don't really want to do this. I'll do without his blessing. Thank you. So we think the choice is either get his blessing or get nothing. But that's not the God of the Bible. The Bible says, no, there's blessing and cursing. There's blessing and discipline. He will not allow his child to perpetually sin, to perpetually go his own way. He says, things are not going to go well for you if you choose to disobey. Do you guys got, do you guys understand the significance of this study now? Are you guys starting to get it a little bit? Then when God speaks, he's expecting you to do something. And he's telling, and I'm telling you this and teaching you this because there's a whole lot of blessings you're not having and a whole lot of discipline that you're finding in your life simply because you refuse to obey. Now, in conclusion, application, let me give this to you. When God speaks through preaching, he demands we respond in obedience. Please let that sink in. Church, would you let that sink in for a minute? We've lost this conviction. Well, I'll just have to think of that through. Well, you know, maybe I'll just get back to God. This is your creator. He's the only one that truly brought you into this world and can take you out. Do you get that? He truly is the one, if you are saved, did it by his own sovereign purposes. He just saved you. Why didn't he save everybody else? I don't know. Because he chose to do it. So there's nothing good in you. He chose to save you. That one who saved you is saying, do this. You have to. Number two, when God speaks through preaching, you must make a decision to obey or disobey. You've got to make a decision. See, this is the one thing, and I'm not trying to mess up our invitation or anything, but here's the thing that just drives me nuts. Let's all stand. If you grew up in a traditional setting like me, let's all stand. Open up your handles to 472. We will sing the first, the third, and the fourth stanza, right? And you're sitting there, okay, where, where, where is it, where is it? In the contemporary church, please stand. Everybody looks right up at the thing. All right, God spoke. Let's read the words on the screen. There we go. Let me tell you, if I was sitting where you are, let me tell you what I would do. If you're already doing business through the whole thing and done business with God, then I'd begin to praise and sing him to God in in glory and thanksgiving for what he did. But let me tell you something. There's no way I'd begin to sing unless I turn to God and sit there and God, God, you have spoken. God, search my heart. Show me through the pure mirror of your word what is wrong and grant me the grace through your power, to repent, to turn, and to live the life that you have called me to do. I would, I would always do Why? Because you have to make a decision. You say, well, what if we don't make any decision at all? Making no decision at all is making a decision for disobedience. Number three, when God speaks through preaching, we can be blessed or cursed based on our response. Isn't that wonderful? In the book of, Jer- in the book of Joshua, he said, hey, look, remember the two mountains? Hey, today there is blessing and there is cursing. Choose today. Which? Which are you going to choose? Listen to me. Every time you read the word, every time you're in small group, every time the word of God is being preached, even like now, you have a chance to obey or disobey, to be blessed or to be cursed. Boy, that's a topic for discussion over lunch, is it not? And finally, four, when God speaks through preaching, we have a chance to positively impact unbelievers around us. Do you know why I don't think more people are interested in the person of Christ 
at least some kind of interest. We know they have to, God has to draw them. But I don't think that you're in my life is interesting enough. I don't think it's different enough. I don't think it's transformed in the image and likeness of Christ enough for them to truly think that there's something actually about this whole salvation thing. Instead, listen, if we don't obey and we just leave, this is what this is. They they will say this. If that's what comes off going to church and hearing all those sermons from the Bible and going to all that Bible study and reading the Bible every day, then I don't want anything to do with the Bible. Anything to do with the Bible. Why should I have to go and waste my time when I can be out on the boat or be camping or doing anything else and I don't have to go there and I'm just as good and just as righteous as they are? But at the same time, how beautiful would it be if Celebration Baptist Church began to really hear what the sermon said and said, I must respond? And every one of us begin to respond and take note and begin to walk out of here. Can you imagine the impact that it would have on Nassau County? Incredible impact. Those are the things that the Word of God says. It says that we need to respond. And let me tell you this. Here's what I want you to get more than anything else. When the sermon is done, it is truly just begun. When this this message is done, your responsibility has really just begun in light of what you decide concerning the Word of God. Let me tell you something. So you don't think that I'm preaching just a do better message because I'm not. God calls us to do what is right, respond in obedience, but you cannot do it apart from the completed work of Jesus Christ and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit that comes through confessing your sin and submitting to God. If you will do that, whatever he's calling you to do, he will empower you to do. And sometimes it's hard, right? Lots of times it's hard. Sometimes it takes a period of time but to, to, to really get the victory of it. But he will give you victory because the victory was done on the cross 2,000 years ago. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you today. We love you. We honor you. God, I know there were some who were not saved today. They need to know you. God, is now is a time for them to respond, to call on you. But God, I know all over this congregation, I know you've been speaking. So right now, God, can we practice for the very first time Can we practice right now looking, praying, asking, God, what is it that you would have me to do in light of the word that has been preached? God, what would you have me to do? Pray, and then God, let us be able to sing praises to you for a God who has illuminated and a God who has enabled us to do all that you've called us and required us to do. Jesus.